Take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. That first Easter morn, that first day, when the women went to that tomb and they found no Jesus. They did not find His body, that is. He was not there. He was risen. He was alive. That day has changed everything else. It has changed everything else for us personally, even us being here this morning. It is because we know that our Jesus is alive. Now, the cross was important. It was so significant. The cross provided for us salvation. But it was through the resurrection that we truly knew that Jesus had the power to save. We think about the cross and it gives to us the forgiveness that we so desperately need. But it was the resurrection that spoke and said that Jesus had the power to step into our lives and to forgive us. The cross reminds us that death itself is a result of sin. And that all of us here in this place, if the Lord Jesus tarries, that all of us will face physical death. But the resurrection says that physical death is not the end. Just as I stood on a cemetery this morning for a sunrise service, I was able to proclaim the hope of the Lord Jesus because we know that through the resurrection, through what Jesus has done, you and I have life now and we will have it for all of eternity. For those of us who have believed in Him. Why? Because we have known the resurrected Lord. Because He is alive. And He is alive today just as much as He was that first Easter morn. He is still our King. And He is still the Lord of Lords. And He is still the one who changes us and transforms us when we come into His presence. I want to share with you this morning about a testimony of a man named Saul that we typically call Paul. How he came to meet the resurrected Lord. Some four plus years after Jesus had been resurrected on that Easter Sunday morning, as I said, he was still alive and he was working in people's lives. And in particular, he works in this man named Saul. He meets him face to face. And what a difference and change will occur. In Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, Dr. Luke tells us the story. He gives us the account in this manner. He says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground, heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Over the last few weeks, we've been following the story given to us in Acts. We've been seeing how the church would expand, how God was working in those early days of believers' lives. 
and how the changes and transformations were taking place. But here in this context, you see in particular how God speaks to one man named Saul. Now Luke tells us that Saul was going about his business. As a matter of fact, when you see Saul the first time in the scripture, in the book of Acts, you'll see that he is there overseeing persecution. He is overseeing the death of Stephen. So you're not surprised when you get to chapter 9 and you see that he is now pursuing those Christians who have gone up to Damascus. The persecution has pushed those early believers out of Jerusalem. And they're finding different communities where they can settle down, where they can worship together without fear of a reprisal. And some 140 miles northeast of Jerusalem, many have found a place there in Damascus, that metropolitan city, hopefully to go somewhat unnoticed by the authorities as they proclaim the gospel of Christ. Saul goes on this road to pursue Christians. But note this. He comes face to face with Jesus. The one that he was actually persecuting. But what I see is that Jesus is alive. Just as I said, he is alive. And this is what I see in this passage. He is alive and he is pursuing Saul. Just as he pursues us today. Our Jesus is alive and he is often on this journey of pursuit. Did you know that Jesus had actually been pursuing Saul before he ever took this road to Damascus? How do I know this? Well, according to what Jesus will say to Saul, according to this verse 5 where it says, It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I am, con I am convinced that Jesus had been working and pursuing this guy named Saul for some time. It's so hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I was sharing this morning as I participated in that sunrise service that I come from a, an agrarian agricultural area, right? Most of you know I'm from Mississippi. In Mississippi, about 99.5% of our state is agricultural. And there's nothing wrong with that. It was, it was great growing up there and kind of living out and seeing the cows of my grandparents and, and seeing the gardens that they had and seeing the great fields of, of cotton and the fields of corn and the fields of soybeans, all of those things. Those were, those were cool. So I ought to know a little bit about goats. But let me tell you, in Mississippi, we didn't use the term goads. Now, when I got to looking at it and studying, what was a goad? I mean, what was he kicking against? This idea of a goad. A goad was this stick that would have a blunt end and a sharp end, and it would be used by those individuals with teams of oxen to encourage the oxen, to motivate them, to put a little stick so that they might move faster. We didn't call them goads in North Mississippi. I'm not sure what the technical term was. All I know is my granddaddy had a stick. And even my brother. And it was rather technologically advanced. It had a button on it. And if they hit that button, and if they hit that uh, cow or whatever else, you could see the motivation in that animal at that point. They called it a hot stick. 
when I got out of line, no, let's move on. He, they were, he, he uses this analogy and he says, you have been kicking against the goads. In other words, even before Paul, or Saul that is here, gets on the road to Damascus, God's already been working in his life. God's been pursuing him. And I believe there's an internal conflict that's going on in Saul. I, I believe there's something within him that he is fighting with. I, I think he's fighting perhaps with that relationship with Jesus and who Jesus is. And he's, he's struggling with it. Because God had been applying that stick, those goads, for some time. What were those goads? I, I'm not sure. There have been those who have suggested that perhaps it was Jesus himself, Jesus' teaching that is, and Jesus' death and the resurrection. It's quite conceivable that Saul would have been in Jerusalem some four plus years earlier and would have either heard Jesus teach or would have witnessed the crucifixion itself. We're not told that. We don't know for sure. But something had brought an internal conflict to Saul. Well, if it had not been Jesus' earthly ministry, I'm quite sure that the martyrdom and the witness of Stephen had had an impact upon him. Remember I said that's the first time you're introduced to a young man named Saul. And the people are coming and they are laying their clothes down at his feet so that they might go and stone this believer, this Stephen. And I believe as Saul stood there, and of course as he was assenting to this, as he watched Stephen die with such grace and a sense of holiness, as he heard Stephen say something to the effect, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. As Stephen dies just as Jesus died, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'm convinced that something began the struggle with inside of Saul as he saw that witness. You know, I'm convinced that as we come here today, Jesus still pursues people. I still believe there are goads that he applies to us. Sticks to prick us, to speak to us. And get this. God will pursue us even when he knows us. Even when he knows us better than we know ourselves. That's part of the grace of God. That's part of the gospel. Because look at Saul. Here, here Jesus speaks to him and says, Saul, Saul. He calls him by name. That gets your attention, doesn't it? When somebody calls you by name. When somebody recognizes, okay, they know who I am. It's a pretty cool little deal. Unless... You're not really proud of your background, especially in the relationship of the individual that's speaking to you. He says, Saul, Saul. It's like, I know who you are. He knew that Saul was nothing more. And listen, very strong language here, but listen. Saul was not much more than a murdering terrorist. 
He knew that. You say, how would you get that? I told you he was there for Stephen's death. Acts chapter 8 verse 3 says that Saul was going from house to house and dragging people out into their streets, men and women alike, to imprison them or who knows, as he will say later, that he will cast votes against them for their execution. And here in chapter 9 verse 1 and 2 that I read a moment ago, Luke reminds us, that Saul is still on a mission of persecution. He's going to Damascus. He's talked to the high priest, perhaps Caiaphas still at this time. He has uh, secured letters for the extradition of those Christians from Damascus to bring them back to Jerusalem so that they can be imprisoned. He is going to deal with this heretical sect no matter what. He was a persecutor. And Jesus even identifies that sin in his life. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He calls out his sin, doesn't he? He says, Saul, I know who you are. I know your name. I know what you've done. You are persecuting me. Note this. Jesus does not say you're persecuting the believers. He does not say you're persecuting the early church. He says you're persecuting me gives us an early indication that the church is truly the body of Christ. Right? And when the church is attacked, Jesus is attacked. It also reminds us, by the way, that there is no separation in love for Jesus and love for the church. If you love one, you got to love the other. If you don't love one, I would question whether that love was true. He says, why are you persecuting me? I say to you that Paul or Saul at this point in his life was a terrorist. No different than those who bombed those churches in Sri Lanka this morning. And we ought to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are hurting in those areas. No different. But get this. Jesus knew all about that stuff in his life, and Jesus still pursued him. Jesus knew his background. Jesus knew all the issues he had, and he still pursued him. Listen, Jesus knows everything about you. He knows the darkest, deepest secrets that you may have. He, has th he knows things that you have hidden from your family. He knows things that you have hidden from your friends, from the church, from everybody else. Jesus knows it. And listen, the grace is he still pursues you. He still loves you. He's coming after you. And that's what he does with Saul. Oh, I shouldn't beat up on Saul so badly because he was a religious scholar and leader. Don't miss this. Saul would have been identified as the good guy of the day. He was the rabbi. Some have even elevated him to a place on the Sanhedrin, the council of, of Jerusalem. He was a good guy. Later on, he'll speak this about his own self. He'll say, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, he says, 
Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He said, if you look at my track record before I was saved, I was a pretty good guy as far as being a Pharisee of Pharisees. I, I belong to the strictest, most conservative religious group you could find. I was zealous. That's the reason I was persecuting people. Baby, I came from the tribe of Benjamin. My name is Saul. Remember Saul? He was the first king of Israel. I got the name. I got the pedigree. I got the practice. I got it all. Except this. Good guys don't go to heaven. Good guys don't automatically qualify for salvation. Did you hear me today? Because see, more of us identify with that Paul or that Saul than we do the terrorist Saul. But your goodness and my goodness will never provide salvation for our hearts and lives. Never. If there was any other way, if we could have been good enough, guess what? I guarantee you God would not have sent his only son to die for us. Can you think of how terrible that would have been if there had been any other way for salvation and the God of heaven looked at his son and said, you must go die? That would have been cruel. We would not worship that kind of God. We would not claim him to be worthy. There was no other way. Because our goodness and our religious deeds will not save us. I want you to hear that clearly. Just because you show up in church or just because you belong to a certain body of believers, just because those things are happening and maybe you get up and you pray and you do all that stuff, that's great, that's awesome. That doesn't give you salvation. Only the one who was worthy to die and the one who was powerful enough to overcome his own grave, Jesus, that is the only one that has the authority to provide salvation for us. He knew Saul and he pursued him. As Saul was persecuting, listen, as Saul was persecuting and pursuing believers, <laughs> Jesus was pursuing him. As he was on that road to go and pursue those early believers, Jesus was pursuing him. I say again, those of us who are saved in this place, those of us who are saved, don't we look back and recognize how Jesus was, was pursuing us even before we realized it? That how he was showing himself strong in our lives, how he was speaking to us. I remember that Sunday night and as I saw that baptism and, and realized that Jesus did die for me. Realized that Jesus did come in that resurrection to bring life. And that's when I realized, and God was just working. Oh, man, I was a mess. I think I've told some of you before that that, that deacon, and man, there are some mean deacons around. Um, <laughs> sure, there are not any in Temple Church, but there's, well, maybe a couple. But there, I remember this mean deacon just prayed that night. Lord, I, I ask you not to allow any individual in this place to sleep or to rest until 
they settle their relationship with you. I didn't sleep for like five nights because of that deacon. But I'm pretty proud he prayed that. Because oh, the conviction. God goads us. He pursues us. And he pursues us when he knows us. That's always been an amazing truth in my life. Is that Jesus knew the Samaritan woman and what did he do? He offered her water. Jesus knew Saul. What did he do? He stopped him in his tracks to bring him into the family. Whoever you are, whether you have those bad things or whether you think you're a good thing, Jesus is pursuing you. He's pursuing us because he's alive today. C.S. Lewis, an atheist literature professor, he was at Oxford when he came to faith. He would write later on about how God had been pursuing him for some time before he came to faith. Sometimes it was really painful for him when God would pursue him. He called himself, quote, the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. Drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. But Jesus pursued him. And Jesus overwhelmed him and overcame him. I want you to hear, he is alive and he pursues us today. I want you to hear that he is alive and listen, he transforms us today. Because just as Saul or C.S. Lewis was transformed as he speaks about it, so was Saul. The scripture says that as he approached that city of Damascus, that a bright light shone We're told in other accounts, oh, this was such a big deal in his life that he will retell it at every opportunity it seems he gets. It's recorded for us, the testimony of Saul, recorded for us three times in the book of Luke. Think of that. Luke only had a certain amount of stuff he was going to write, and yet he chose to devote three different incidents to the testimony of Saul who will become Paul. This Saul, this one had experienced the overwhelming light. As I said, the other accounts tell us it happens at midday. Think of that. So when we get out of church and uh, you're going to eat after church, some of you are going to eat after church. Yeah? I, I have, that's it. I have one appointment. I can make many, many rounds, by the way, the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> Don't have to come in to work tomorrow because the boss gave us a little time off. So you know what? It's... Uh, Yeah, just invite me. I'll be at your house. (laughs) Midday. Midday is so bright. And yet, this light was brighter than the sun itself. And the light knocked Saul down. He fell. This was not an epileptic seizure as some have suggested. This this transformation didn't happen because he was spurned by the daughter of the high priest that you'll read from some critical uh, students or so. I'm telling you, this was Jesus himself and his glory. And the light was greater than the sun itself. And it knocked Saul to his feet. It stopped him in his tracks. Oh, the way God can do that, huh? God can stop you in your tracks in just a moment. 
God can get your attention. He can do it with a word that is spoken maybe by a preacher or a Sunday school teacher. He can do it. Listen. He can do it with a medical diagnosis or he can do it with a crisis of faith that comes in your life. I'm saying to you that Jesus can use anything to stop us right where we are so that we will hear clearly what he has to say for us. And it says that he heard a voice personally. According to the other accounts, and, and, and when you wed it with this account that you find in Acts, it's like they couldn't understand what the voice was saying. Isn't that how God works, by the way? It's like this morning. The voice of God can speak to you personally right here in this place. You may say to yourself, it doesn't feel like anybody else is in this audience. And there's a lot of people here today. But it feels like Jesus is talking directly to me. Because he has a customized message to you. Because he wants to transform you. He speaks. Oh, look the way Saul responds. Saul says... Saul says, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? I I do think the initial response is something like, who are you, sir? Because the word Lord could be translated, sir. Who who are you? Oh, those words, verse 3. Those words, I'm Jesus. Yeah. I'm Jesus. Saul must have been thinking in his mind. This man was supposed to be dead. I've been trying to stamp out the idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. I've been telling everybody that there was not, not a resurrection of Jesus. I've been telling everybody that that man was dead and that his body was stolen by the apostles. It's hard to tell people that when Jesus is standing right in front of you. He says... I'm Jesus. I am Jesus. It's one thing to hear about Jesus. It's one thing to subscribe to religious philosophies. It's another thing to come face to face with Jesus. To come and recognize that he is living. The response, verse 6, so trembling and astonished. Oh yeah, I bet he was. Sometimes the scripture is given to understatement, I believe. Trembled, trembling and astonished. He says, Lord, what do you want me to do? The term Lord there, I think, has different significance than it did in the initial question. There, I believe he's using it in the same way that Moses would use it to respond or to speak of the I am that I am. The Lord, who had appeared to him and spoken and transformed. There was transformation. There was surrender. What do you want me to do? You hear that? That's just simple surrender. What do you want me to do? When you come before Jesus face to face, listen. You have to recognize who he is, that he is truly Lord. And you have to bow yourself in faith and commitment. God, what do you want me to do? Surrender. Augustine called Paul's conversion, quote, the violent capture of a rebel will. The rebel had been apprehended. The one who was going to apprehend Christians had just been arrested by Jesus. And there was real change. 
You can see it later in the following verses. He goes to Damascus. There's this man named Ananias that God will speak to and say, Ananias, I need you to go and talk to a guy named Saul. Ananias, you got a loving, faithful guy, but he says, God, I, I know you all know him. I know you, you got it all figured out, but God, I think you might have missed something here. This guy named Saul, this is the guy, this is a bad dude. This is the guy that was coming to destroy. I've heard of what he's done. Now, God, I know you want, God, are you sure this is the guy? And Jesus affirms his plan, his call. For Saul's life. And he sends Ananias. Because what he will see is a real change in this man named Saul. It was not an emotional response that was somehow worked up by a preacher or an evangelist one Sunday morning. It was a real change and transformation that occurred in his life. He was a different person. And may I say this to you? While our salvation may not be exactly the same or come in the same manner or same way as Saul's did. In other words, I never saw a light shining. I didn't hear that type of audible voice. While our salvation may not come in the same manner, listen, your salvation and my salvation should be just as real as the Apostle Paul's. You and I should be totally changed and transformed. May not be as dramatic, but it is just as life-changing. Old Pollock said this. He said, God incredibly had raised the shattered body of Jesus from the grave so that he was alive and had confronted Paul not to crush and destroy, not to revenge the blood of the persecuted, but to rescue the persecutor and overwhelm him with love and forgiveness Paul knew from the bottom of his heart that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world. This was not a conclusion of cold logic, though that must come. It went beyond intellect. He knew because he knew Jesus. He was transformed. I wish you'd take it home maybe this afternoon. Uh, I don't know, again, after you invite me over to a meal. Maybe you can read... And, uh, and see the rest of these verses. Because I'd love for you to, to read this account and notice that how this Jesus who's alive, how he pursues, how he transforms, and how he empowers a guy named Saul who will eventually become the apostle we know as Paul. God will do his work. Because God's got a plan. God's got a plan for Saul. He tells it to Ananias. He said, hey, this individual is going to be my vessel, my instrument that I'm going to use to declare my name to the Gentiles, the kings, and to the nation or the people of Israel. He said, I'm going to use him. You know what? God's still in the business of using people. When you meet Jesus and you know he's alive, after he's pursued you and transformed you, know this, he can empower you. He has a mission for you. Some of you say, man, I, I can't imagine. I mean, he's not going to use me like Saul. Listen, 
You and I don't need to get into the comparative business of how he uses this or how he uses that. All we need to do is say, God, again, what do you want me to do? Because I know you have a plan for me. And I know you have a purpose for me. Oh, yes, he's going to use Paul mightily. Oh, yeah, he's going to change his name. Or some believe that he was given that name when he was younger, the Greek Latin name of Paul. But yet now he comes to be known as Paul. Paul, which means small. I think he was a short guy. God uses short guys powerfully. <laughs> Dynamite right there. No doubt. The small one, the modest one, but oh, when it comes to his missionary adventures, they will be anything but small. Thousands of miles he will travel. At least 13 books of our New Testament penned by the apostles. And it all began because he saw Jesus who was alive. It all began. Well, I love the way he'll put it. I love the way he'll state it. Later on, this murderer, this terrorist that I told you about, he'll write this. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The scholar, the one who had studied for all those years, he will write and he will say, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The religious leader that had all these impeccable credentials that I read to you earlier, he'll write to that same church there at Philippi and he'll say, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them in rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means... I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That same one, that same one would say, to live as Christ, to die is gain. The one who had been persecuted, who becomes, or the one who had persecuted so many individuals, who becomes the persecuted, said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then 1 Corinthians 15. God, share it with you. Because this Saul, who was pursued by Jesus, who was transformed by the living Jesus, who was empowered and utilized by Jesus, as he writes upon this glorious thought of the resurrection and the glorious thought of meeting Jesus, the resurrected Lord. This is what he says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So then when this happens, 
the things will be brought to pass, the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But get this, the transformed Saul, who is Paul, says, Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know exactly why you're here this morning. Some of you said, well, this is my home church. This is where I wanted to be. Some of you are visiting this morning. Some of you came with family. Some of you say, hey, it's our tradition. We come on Easter Sunday. That's awesome. That's good. But did you know that before you walked in this door that Jesus was pursuing you? Some of you feel the goads. And I believe some of you probably have been kicking against it for quite a while. There's an internal conflict. I want you to hear me today that if you're a lost, there's much more to Easter than just a big Sunday morning service. There's more to it than just great music. If you're lost today, what you need is not an emotional experience. You need a transformational experience of the living Lord. He is alive. He is. And he wants to transform you. But you've got to be willing. Lord, I recognize who you are. What do you want me to do? And you know what he wants you to do? Trust him, have faith, have commitment, repent of your sins. Those of us who are saved, again, it's more than just getting our emotional fix today. It's being reminded of the truth and the promise of Scripture. Hey, hopefully it is a memory of, of the moment we met Jesus as the risen Lord and how he transformed us. And he still has a plan for you. He does, no matter how, no matter what you're up to. He still has a plan. And he wants to empower you to fulfill it. Would you hear this God who makes a difference, this God who transforms, would you hear him? And would you submit yourself to him today? Let's pray together. Father, again, we come to you and we praise you for sending your son to do something we could have never done for ourselves. We do thank you for his willingness to die on the cross for our sins. Because no matter how bad or how good we think we are, we could have never crossed that sin debt, the valley that had been created. We could have never crossed it without your intervention. And God, we thank you that we celebrate today that he didn't stay on the cross and he didn't stay in the tomb. Lord, that your son is the reigning king. That he's as live today as he ever has been. And just as his power was demonstrated on the Damascus Road, I pray that this morning his power would be demonstrated here within this facility at Temple Baptist Church. That you'd speak to people. That you'd help some of us who are believers who need to come back to you and recommit ourselves to you and to your church and to your purposes, Lord. I pray that we do that today.
Father, for those who are lost, and there are some in this group, Father, I pray that your spirit would get all over them right now, that you would convict them, and that they would surrender. Lord, we love you. We praise you. Thank you for this day. Work now in this invitation. In Jesus' name.